Well, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be jumping into this week is, in my opinion at least, probably the most misused and abused passage in all of the Bible. It is quite often ripped entirely out of its context and used actually to say the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying in this passage. It's used almost as a self-defense mechanism to keep anyone away who might want to question anything that we are doing or, or, or believing so that we might not be called into account. Here, here's how it usually works, okay? Uh, one of you comes up to me after service this morning and says, listen, Pastor, I love you. So I, I've got to say that I saw you yesterday driving through downtown, and you were going 90, okay? Let's just be honest, and your eyes were closed. You weren't wearing a seatbelt, and you were texting. And we know, because you've taught us that, that, that Romans 13 says that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. And you were fleeing from that police car. <laughs> and God's word tells us, Jesus says it over and over again, that we are to love each other. And those two old ladies you ran over, I don't think they felt very loved by you. So pastor, let me just suggest that maybe you shouldn't be driving like that anymore. At which point, I would put on my most sanctimonious and offended countenance. How dare you? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't you know that the Lord has said, judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> That's how it usually goes. <laughs> we've all been there, haven't we? We've all brought an issue to someone and we've been told by them that we were judging them and that that was something that we should not do. And maybe we were judging them. Or we've been on the other end. I mean, let's admit it. Someone has come to us to challenge us about something that's going on in our life, and we're embarrassed. We've done or said something stupid, something sinful. We don't want to deal with it. We definitely don't want to deal with it in front of someone else. And so we've informed them that Jesus has made a universal, generic, and complete ban on all judgment, and they should be aware of that. Now, Jesus did say, don't judge. We'll read it in our passage today. But you know what? Jesus did a lot of other things, too. He said a lot of other things that are part of what he was saying when he said, don't judge. In fact, part of what he's saying when he says, don't judge, is that even though we are not to judge, yet there is an aspect, there is a dynamic where we are to identify sin and challenge it when it's in the lives of our brother or sister in Christ. 
So how does that work? How do those two things fit together? What did Jesus mean when he said to us, don't judge? Well, figuring that out is our task for this morning. So open your Bibles, Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six. We're gonna pick up in verse 36. We'll read through verse 42. And I'll ask you to do this if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read our passage. You can follow along in your Bible. We'll be reading the words of Jesus, Luke chapter six, beginning in verse 36. It says, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, grant us the humility to subject ourselves to your word. The clarity, God, to understand the things that you have clearly said. God, the willingness to let you speak to us about our lives and our living. God, we pray that you would take this time and you'd use it to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. That's what we want. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you remember where we left off last week, Jesus has been challenging his followers to love their enemies. Think about that. Think about that. To love their enemies. To, to love people without any regard to how those people will respond to them in return. And moving on from there, Jesus now begins to call his followers to forgive rather than to condemn. To have mercy rather than judgment. Now, if we're going to correctly understand what Jesus is saying here, then we're going to have to keep this passage in its context. Here's what I mean. What Jesus says here is part of a longer teaching. It's not just an isolated sentence that Jesus speaks that has no context. No, what Jesus says here it needs to make sense in the context of the larger teaching that he is giving. There's a context bigger than that as well. 
Luke and the other gospels record for us many more of the teachings of Jesus. And so what Jesus says here, it needs to make sense within the context of the other things that Jesus taught. And of course, in the greatest context, what Jesus says here, we need to understand it, it needs to make sense in the context of the whole of Scripture. Now, context creates a bit of a problem for us. If what Jesus says here really is that there is to be a wholesale and universal ban against any and all sorts of judgment. It's a problem because you can't even get to the next paragraph before Jesus actually tells us that we are to make judgments. Look down just a little bit further beyond our passage, down to verse 43. And there Jesus tells a parable and he instructs us, he tells us that we can know someone's heart by judging what it is that they are doing. He says this, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. And on the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit for each tree is known by its fruit. Jesus then goes on to let them know that he's not talking about fruit or trees, but he's talking about people. Jesus says that the same is true of people, that we can know the condition of someone's heart simply by observing the fruit of their living. And I think of the fruit of my living and what Jesus says there hurts. <laughs> Later on, Jesus tells his disciples, Luke 17, that if your brother sins, you should rebuke him and if he repents, forgive him. So Jesus says here that not only are we to see when someone sins, and not only are we to discern or judge that something is sinful, but when a brother sins, we are to rebuke them. Part of loving one another, Jesus says, is confronting each other over sin in our lives. We are to love each other unconditionally. There's no doubt about that. But we don't unconditionally approve of everything that everyone does. Because true love, it confronts sin. True love does the uncomfortable thing and it confronts sin. What's key and what Jesus is addressing here is how we do that. Not even so much what we do, but our attitude in doing it. When it comes to, to life together within the, the body of Christ, you and I, as we begin to deal with these issues with each other, what Jesus is saying here is that we cannot allow within ourselves any hypocrisy or any self-righteousness. Instead, Jesus says, look at verse 36, beginning of our passage, be merciful. How merciful should we be? Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. Oh, we're to be merciful in the way to the degree that God the Father has been merciful with us. We are to love others without any regard to whether or not they deserve it, just like God has loved us even though we don't deserve it. 
We're to be merciful, just like God has been merciful to us. And when the situation arises and we have to confront another believer about their sin, we're to be merciful in that situation as well. The honest truth is that each and every one of us bristles when someone comes to confront us about sin in our life. That's not comfortable for any of us. No one likes having their sin pointed out. Far too often, that awkward situation is made even worse because the person doing the pointing out, they don't do it in the loving, gentle way that Scripture commands. Oh, either just because they're insensitive or maybe because they're really nervous about doing this, sometimes it comes across as if the objective of their rebuke, the whole point of why they're doing this, it isn't to free us from our sin. It isn't to safeguard our walk with the Lord, but rather it's to prove what a sinful loser we are. It's to demonstrate how wrong we are and how right they are. That's the way it comes across sometimes, isn't it? And so the person being confronted can be prone to grabbing a hold of a passage like this one here in Matthew 7 and using it as a defensive shield to fend off anyone who would dare to insinuate that they might have sin in their life. And so we'll quote verse 37 to them. Look at verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. We leave it at that. We pull that verse out of context. We isolate it. We ignore everything around it and use it as a weapon against the one who has come to confront us. But if we stop and we look at the context of this passage, then we have to know that Jesus isn't saying here that we are not to challenge each other. Jesus isn't saying, don't go to your brother or sister in the Lord and speak to them about the sin in their life. And let them work it out on their own. Just leave them alone. Actually, Jesus is saying here just the opposite. So how are we to understand the bare commandment that Jesus makes here? This, this, this thing that he says that is so simple and so plain, don't judge, don't condemn. There are a couple of dynamics that if we understand them, I think it will help our understanding of this passage. The first is this, language. Uh, the New Testament it was originally written in the Greek language, right? We, we all understand that. And so what we are reading when we read our Bibles, it's a translation, a translation of the original. And translation is a very difficult task. It's difficult because languages don't often have perfectly equivalent words. A great example of that is that you and I, we have one English word for love, for the concept of love. And so we will boldly declare that we love ice cream. And then we will turn to our child. We'll look at our child and say, I love you. Just like ice cream. And then we will whisper passionately into our spouse's ear, I love you. That same word, that same word gets used for all three. It's kind of awkward. 
It's kind of odd. In Greek, on the other hand, has four different words that communicate love. Kind of separates that whole parent-child ice cream kind of dynamic. And that same situation we find here with the concept of judgment. The Greek has several different words. Several different words that are translated into the English word judge or judgment. The Greek word used here is the word krino, and, and it means a lot of different things. It can mean a lot of different things depending on the context, depending the sentence it's used in and how it is used within that sentence. Even grammar begins to play a role in this. It's interesting, here in verse 37, grammatically, it is in what they call the present active imperative tense. I don't know what that means either, so don't feel bad. But understand it this way. What it really means is that in this case, that word isn't whispering, it's shouting. It isn't whispering, it's shouting. And so it is in the strongest sense of this word that it is being used here. And so it refers here to a final absolute judgment. It's the kind of judging that Jesus says here we are not to do because it's not our job to sentence someone to condemnation. And yet scripture is full of, of commands from the Lord that we are to judge. And when we just saw down in verse 43, this whole parable that Jesus gives us to say, hey, listen, you're supposed to discern between good and evil. You're supposed to judge between what's right and what's wrong, not only in the abstract, but in the lives that we live. We have to be able to differentiate, to judge between right and wrong in situations, within our own lives, and even within the lives of others. Here's the key. We've got to very clearly understand and very distinctly keep in mind who it is that defines what is judged and what is condemned. And it's not us. It's not us. That's God's job. It's God's job to decide what is right and what is wrong, who is saved and who is condemned. That's God's call. But God has clearly communicated his judgments to us. He's given us his word. He's given us his word. He has defined what right is and what wrong is. He has defined who is saved and who is damned. And he has now commissioned us to share that with others. We don't get to make those calls on our own. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, just think, if one of us was the one who decided who's saved and who isn't. I mean, you'd have some serious kissing up to do. Hey, you just have to keep them happy at whatever cost. But God has declared that. God has, do has decided that. And so it's to God that we submit. And, and, and we've been given the job as his ambassadors, as his representatives to communicate God's judgments to others. 
That's, that's what we've been tasked with doing. That's what witnessing is. That's what, what we do when we share the good news with someone is we bring up this issue of sin, of brokenness between them and God. We speak to someone whose God's word has said is condemned, is damned to hell because they're without Christ. I haven't decided that they're in that position. I haven't been the one to... to to say that this is how it is, God's word has declared it. And my job is to declare to them the good news that they don't have to stay in that place. The same is true when it comes to sharing with a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin. I don't decide what sin is. I don't decide what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. That's God's job. But God has given us the task of speaking into each other's lives. We are ambassadors of the one who loves us so much that he went to the cross to die in our place. He so desires that we would not be condemned that he took our condemnation. He so desires that we would be free from sin that he shed his blood to break the shackles, to set us free. And so we are to go as ambassadors of the one who loves them so much, whose loving concern is for them that he would send us to them so that they might not suffer the, reper the repercussions of the position that they're in. We don't go out of anger or disgust. We don't go with self-righteous arrogance but rather we go with the love of the Father. We go with the love of the Son who died in their place to rescue them out of this situation. Notice, too, this curious dynamic that, that Jesus describes um, repeatedly in this, in this passage. He says, judge not, you won't be judged. Condemn not you won't be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and you'll get. Please, let me be very blunt. This is not karma. Okay, karma is not a, a, a Christian theological concept. It, Jesus isn't saying that, hey, if you just don't judge people, no one will ever judge you. Hasn't been my experience is Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, just be absolutely generous and other people will always be generous to you. Life doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. What Jesus is talking about is this, that those who live this way because they have been rescued by the Savior, their lives have been transformed by the King of Kings, as they live this way, what they will discover is that in the end, on that day, when they stand face to face with the king, when they are in the presence of the Savior, they will not be judged because their sin has already been judged in Christ. They will receive more than they have ever given or could ever give. They will be forgiven more than they could ever forgive. 
In other words, what Jesus is saying here is what Eric said last week, is that no one will get to heaven and think, what a ripoff. No, we will receive far more than we will ever give. Now, partway through verse 37, Jesus says this, forgive and you will be forgiven. Forgive and you will be forgiven. You know, we don't often comprehend the true depth and depravity of our sin. We tend to to kind of gloss over it, quite honestly. But on that day, on that day when we stand before Christ, when we see him in all of his glorious and holy perfection, on that day we will see clearly the foulness of our sin. I'm so glad that on that day as well, we will see the overwhelming goodness of his mercy and grace. We will see that even the worst of the sins committed against us, that they are nothing in comparison to our guilt towards God. We will see that these things that that we have so struggled to forgive in this life, they are small compared to what God has forgiven us for. We are foolish if we cry out for justice. What we ought to cry out for is mercy. You know, we always want justice when someone cuts us off in traffic or you know, you're, if you're like me, you're driving 45 up 41. Some guy blazes by you, going about 70, and you just think, oh, where's a cop when you need one? Yeah, I know, I know it's 55. I, I still drive 45. It's what I do. I'm that guy. <laughs> I don't mean to be. It's just it's what's happening. There are so many times that we're driving and we think, that guy needs to get what he's got coming. But you know what transforms our heart immediately? Seeing red and blue flashers in our rearview mirror. No more justice, mercy. Mercy, Lord, mercy. We don't need justice, we need mercy here. We cry out to the Lord, we cry out for mercy. We need to have that same attitude with those around us. It's so easy to want justice against, leveled upon those around us. But what we need is mercy. What they need is mercy. I need to look for opportunities not to mete out justice, but to ladle out gobs and gobs of mercy. That's what we need. Think of what James says. James 2.13. James is so blunt. James says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Wake up. 
Wow. Judgment is without mercy to the, to the one who has not shown mercy. And, and, and then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is better. Mercy is better. So show mercy. Look for opportunities to show mercy. Look for opportunities to show mercy. But let's stop and think for a moment what that will mean. Because mercy is costly. Mercy comes at a price. And if you're going to show mercy, you're going to be the one to pay that price. Mercy doesn't take vengeance, even when it could. Mercy doesn't get even, even when everyone around you would understand. Mercy willingly loses. Mercy forgives the unworthy. It loves and it, it gives again and again to the ungrateful. Mercy means willingly taking a loss, accepting less, hurting without complaint. How do I know that that's what mercy is? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what the Savior did for us. That is how he has poured out mercy upon us. It came at a high cost to him. Verse 38 says, give and it will be given to you. And then he describes it a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over generous is what he's saying. It'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Here, Luke's focus is, is on the good side of this. Matthew focuses more on the negative side of this when he tells us about this teaching. But here, Luke says, basically, you can't outgive God. Don't worry about it. You'll never give God more than he's going to give back to you. He will pour out more blessing upon you in one way or another than you could ever give to him. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind guide lead the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So here Jesus gives three parables or pictures of truth. Uh, one in verse 39, another in verse 40, and then the third one in verses 41 and 42. And these three parables, they go together. They're not just random sayings of disconnected sayings of Jesus, but, but they're all about spiritual sight. The first parable is very simple. You have to be able to see to help others, okay? If you're blind, don't apply to be a tour guide. It's not gonna help anyone right? You have to be able to see before you can help others. And the second parable tells us how to gain that ability to see. How do we get this spiritual, uh, this spiritual vision like Jesus has? Well, we get it from him. We get it from him. Simply let him train you. Learn from him. Become his disciple. Let him shape and mold you. And then the third parable it repictures what the first two told us, 
And it tells us what it is that we are supposed to be doing then with this spiritual sight. Now look at verse 41. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye? This is a gruesome picture, isn't it? A gruesome thought to think of a splinter in somebody's eye. Here it is. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood? What's that? That's ridiculous. A beam, a giant support beam of wood in your own eye, and you don't notice it? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me yank out that splinter in your eye. One of the paramedics in first service, let me know, never pull a splinter out of someone's eye. That's not what you're supposed to do. And they, he really wanted me to tell you that you're supposed to just cover it with something and take him to the emergency room, okay? But that's not in the Bible. It's not in here anywhere. But you can't offer to take a splinter out of someone's eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your own eye. Now, too often this passage is quoted. Its whole purpose in being quoted is to stop the very thing that Jesus is promoting in this teaching. So is someone confronts a friend about some sin in their life and their response is this, don't judge the speck in my eye when you've got a plank in yours, brother, you know, and yet, when you think about that, isn't Mr. Speckeye judging Mr. Plankeye? And aren't you judging them right now for judging them about judging them? There's a lot of judging that goes on. Usually, what someone means when they quote this verse is simply this leave me alone. Leave me alone. But the whole point of this passage is we're not supposed to leave each other alone. We're supposed to care enough about each other to help each other. We're supposed to help each other out. And that's why we can't be blind, because if we're blind, we can't lead someone else. We'll just both end up in a ditch. We need to know how to help each other out and how to help each other out of sin. We need to be able to do it the right way. These parables are all about seeing and addressing sin both in our lives and in the lives of those around us and how it is that we can deal with our sin and we can help others deal with their sin. Think about this. If you had a splinter in your eye, no way would you just want to be left alone. <laughs> right, leave me alone. I got a day off next week. I'll, I'll get it looked at. No. No, this is an emergency room thing. This is something that we want dealt with immediately. It's painful, it's debilitating, it's urgent. It's something that you would need help to get rid of. Think about it, especially in Jesus' day, the hard thing about getting something out of your eye, especially in the day before good mirrors were commonplace, you couldn't do it by yourself. Someone else had to help you. And they needed to be someone who themselves did not have something stuck in their eye so that they could see clearly in order to help you. So, so listen to what Jesus says in this parable. Look, they're part way through verse 42. He says, hypocrite, play actor, faker, first take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. So Jesus says that we need to take the beam of wood out of our eye so that we can help our neighbor with their splinter. 
Now, someone having a beam of wood in their eye, that's ridiculous. That's re it's preposterous. It's nonsensical. You wouldn't have a beam of wood in your eye. You might have your eye in a beam of wood, uh, but it, it, it's ridiculous, and that's the picture. And, and why, then, would Jesus use such a ridiculous picture? I mean, he wasn't just going for a cheap laugh. I think Jesus has two points here. I think, first of all, Jesus is reminding us that we need to come in humility. That when we come to someone else to address an issue of sin, we have got to grab hold of humility because we are prone, each and every one of us, to self-righteousness. Now, that's an ugly thing, isn't it? You should be a little insulted that I just said that about you. But it's true. We are all prone to this. We are all prone to this. We tend to act like we have it all together. We, we, we cover over. We gloss over our stuff. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want others to know. And yet, what is the result of that? What is the result of having a stinking beam sticking out of our face but refusing to address it. Well, it makes people who are hurting from a splinter in their eye less comfortable bringing it up. If, if I've got this facade going on that it's all good with me, someone whose life is falling apart is gonna feel like they can't understand, they can't relate, I can't go to them. And so Jesus says, man, when you come to someone about an issue of sin, Remember, you got a beam in your eye. Have some humility. D don't come with this arrogant, I got it together attitude. But come as another of the many that Jesus has rescued because they were helplessly caught in their sin. I'm just another rescued one. I'm just another one that Jesus has saw fit to pull me out of the pit. I too have been saved by grace. I too was helplessly shackled in my own stupidity until the Savior came to set me free. Secondly, I think that Jesus uses such a ridiculous picture because he wants to remind us that our hypocritical sin is almost always more evident to others than we think. Oh, we think we've done a good job uh, disguising that plank sticking out of our eye. But others see it like an oversized load with a red flag on it. You know, it's just it's hanging out there for everyone to see. And we're like, oh, yeah, I hid that really well. No, you, you really didn't. And that's why we need people in our lives who are willing to speak bold truth to us. We need people in our lives who are willing to confront our sin. And we need to let them do that. In fact, we need to invite them to do it and not reject it when they do. And that's hard. That's kind of scary. I mean, if you, have you said to anyone, listen, you see me blowing it. Talk to me. Tell me. If you see sin in my life, confront me. And if you haven't said that to someone, you've got to. 
You've got to make yourself vulnerable in that way. You've got to have that protection. It's safety, it's security to have someone watching your back, looking out for you. And we need to be that person for each other. We need to be bold enough, brave enough, self-sacrificial enough to be willing to come to each other and say, listen, I'd rather take NyQuil and Exlax on the same night than talk to you about this. But I've got to. <laughs> I don't know why I went there. <laughs> That's not in my notes, nor should have it been. That's how we feel about it, isn't it? I would rather face just about anything than confront you in your sin. But if I love you, if I love you enough to put aside my discomfort, to put aside my fear over how you might respond, how you might view me, then I'm a faithful friend. We need to speak honestly and lovingly to each other. It's a scary thing to do, but don't let your nervousness about doing this make you into a, a, a blunt weapon. Come gently, honestly, faithfully. Go to Jesus, let him deal with your sin. Ask him to disentangle you, to free you, to cleanse you, to, to put upon you his righteousness, stuff that he promises he will do for us. And then when Jesus has been our guide, when he has trained us, we can see clearly and we can bring others to him so that he might do the same for them. And then it won't be about judging or condemning people. It'll be about caring for them. It'll be about helping them and being for them and doing what is best for them. You know, even in the Old Testament law, God commanded that, that his people watch out for each other in regard to sin. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. I'm sure this is, you know, a life verse for most of you. Um, rebuke your neighbor directly and you will not incur guilt because of him. Now think about that. Think about what God is saying here. God is saying, you have an obligation to me to look out for each other, to protect each other from the dangers of sin. It's not about condemning someone or judging someone. It's about protecting each other, about caring for each other and, and, and helping each other avoid the danger of sin. Guys, we've got to have each other's back. When someone yells duck, instead of getting all offended, we should probably duck. We should take a look at what they say and ask the Lord to, to set us free. Listen to what Paul says about what we're to do in Galatians chapter six. 
says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing. So in other words, we are looking at someone's life and we are judging right from wrong, sin from righteousness. There is a judging that has to take place there. He says, if you see someone overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. So again, restoration is the goal. It's not proving your point or putting someone in their place. It isn't, you know, exercising your superiority, but it's seeking to restore them to the right place. And it's not done harshly. It's not done even bluntly, but with tenderness. Almost as if you were touching their eye. It's interesting that Jesus uses a, a sliver in an eye a speck in the eye as his example here because there is a tenderness that needs to be, be present in this. A little later, Paul says, carry one another's burdens. You know, it will be burdensome to do this with each other. It will be a heavy load at times to confront sin and then walk with someone through that process of them being set free by the Lord. That can be a heavy burden. It can be a long walk with someone. But look at what we're doing if we do it. Look at what Paul says, that if we do this in this way, we will fulfill the law of Christ. We will be doing the thing that, that our Savior has called us to do, to care for each other, and to help each other, to draw closer to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to, to worship you together. And God, I pray. I pray for a boldness and a sensitivity. God, a willingness and a humility. God, to, to function as your body together. God, help us to, to do this thing that you have called us to do and to do it in the way that you've called us to do it. Give us your love for each other. Give us a gentle touch. Give us clear vision. God, I pray you'd set us free from sin that entangles us so easily. Lord, that you give us clarity of vision. And Lord, a, a real willingness to walk together to allow you to accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish within us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.